This episode of Brewer's Perspective is presented by HPA. Following on from the success of their Eclipse Mixed 12-pack in 2020, HPA has teamed up with Beer Cartel once again in 2021. This time, they're challenging a dozen Aussie breweries to create a limited edition beer featuring popular hops exclusively in the form of Lupermax, an exciting innovation from Haas, their distribution partner in the US. Given this episode of Brewer's Perspective is all about the modern IPA and hops, we wanted to find out a little bit more about Lupermax, so I spoke with Alejandro Cortez, Brewing Solutions Specialist at John I. Haas, and asked him what Lupermax is. Lupermax is a highly consistent, concentrated lupulin pellet. Two most important concepts there are consistency and concentration, right? And this is probably this probably speaks to the reason of, of this product to exist because that's what we identified. Uh, sort of our ethos as an innovations group has been for the past, I don't know, five, six, seven years, uh, maximum flavor, minimum loss. Uh, we've noticed that brewers want to dry hop uh, with higher and higher doses, uh, push the envelope in terms of uh, what's possible uh, for hoppy flavor and aroma. Uh, but yield loss and, and the bottom line is important as well, right? Uh, so at the end of the day, we want brewers to have the flavor they want, but have uh, as much liquid out of the fermenter as they possibly can as well. That was just a small part of my chat. You can hear the interview in full by listening to it in the Brews News Brewery Pro channel on your favorite podcast platform. There is a link in the show notes. Now, this is Marcus Cox discussing hops with Scott Janish. Enjoy. Uh, hello and welcome to Brewer's Perspective. My name is Marcus Cox and this week I'm speaking with hop expert Scott Janish. Scott is a home brewer, writer and author of the new IPA, Scientific Guide to Hop Aroma and Flavor. In the new IPA, Scott scoured through hundreds of academic studies, collecting and translating the relevant hop science into one easily digestible book. For the book, he read hundreds of studies spanning topics such as hop oils, biotransformation, head retention, hop creep, impact of grains and proteins on haze and flavor, different hopping techniques, and the impact of water chemistry and dry hopping on bitterness. His goal was to piece together years of research, often forgotten or generally undiscovered, and apply it to modern New England IPAs, which are full of hop flavor, low on the hot side bitterness, and of course, hazy. I wanted to speak with Scott to discuss modern IPAs, hopping techniques, and also newer advancements with hop products and see how they're helping brewers with these modern styles. Over to you, Scott. Good, good. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. This, this, I'm looking forward to this. Excellent. Let's um, kick it off with just a, a quick overview of the book. Yeah. I mean, the book, uh, it's been out for a, a little bit now. It was kind of a, I like to say it was like a two-year kind of side project for me, and it was kind of one that is often a little uh, selfish in a way because I was, you know, obviously doing it to potentially maybe sell a few of them, but really it was, I was opening up uh, uh, Sapwood Cellars, which is a, a brewery I, I co-own. With. I, I didn't want to, I just realized I might've cut you short with the homebrewer comment, uh, obviously being a professional brewer with the Sapwood um, setup. Well, no, that's all right. And, and uh, still very much a homebrewer uh, in mindset. Uh, in fact, my partner is uh, Michael Tonsmeyer, who is also uh, an author. He wrote American Sour Beers and blog for a long time as the mad fermentationist and still occasionally will throw up uh, a blog post, but, um, our, our backgrounds, um, you know, so you've got the best side of, you've got the best side of sour and you've got the best side of hops in the same place. Well, that was, uh, part of our hope when we we're going into it, but yeah, I guess that we'll see what people, uh, what people think about our, our beer. But I, I, um, yeah, I mean, that's, that was kind of the idea and, um, it was, you know, very, very easy to trust somebody else that's, um, that committed, um, not only to, just the style, but just to, to transparency and writing about things and, you know, sharing what you learn with, with the world is, um, you know, something I appreciate in other brewers and definitely something I appreciated in, in a lot of Mike's work. So, um, yeah, we're, I'm actually sitting now, I had to come next door. Um, we just got a, a new, uh, little suite, um, that's not right next to our brewery, but it's, there's one suite in between us, but now we finally have our, a separate sour space for all of our, um, you know, close to hundred sour wine barrels. And, and so that's a, a nice advancement for us for uh, keeping our, our, our clean and, and sour stuff a little more separate, but yeah, I mean, just uh, getting back to uh, your question, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it was, yep. um, you know, like I said, a kind of a two-year project of just reading through, you know, you know, hundreds of studies and, and it's a, 
um, kind of something I still, it's a, you know, you know, I still spend, you know, a couple hours a week kind of reading through what's, what's new. And how did you find yourself in that position where you were just accumulating this knowledge and reading these papers in the first place? The, my, some of the, the readings I've done on, on your background with this is that you didn't intentionally start off to write the book. You found you'd accumulated so much knowledge in one place. You wanted to spin it over because you were halfway there basically. With yeah. I got, you know, I was really just kind of you know, blogging for the most part about, you know, just how most homebrewers might do it, where you, you, you know, you put together some information about why you put together a recipe and then brew the beer and then write about, you know, whether you liked it, if you didn't like it, if you would change things about it. And I just uh, slowly started to get more and more into like the academic side of, of brewing, which was really to me was something I was just kind of stumbled across. I can't even tell you exactly how I found the first couple papers that I ended up reading. But to me, it was just, um, you know, it, I, I was hooked right away because, you know, a lot of times in brewing, it, you know, I go into homebrewer meetings or reading blog posts online, you, you get a lot of good opinions that you trust. Um, but there's something about, you know, a cr- controlled uh, experiment in a lab where, you know, there's sensory data being do- taken as well as, you know, actually measuring things for, for hop compounds, um, for example. So, you know, to me, that was really exciting. That was, you know, like, wow, like, okay, I, I know what a lot of people think we should do when we're brewing. Um, you know, I, I trust these people, I, I trust their, their opinions, but it's pretty great to see, you know, a controlled study where they're, you know, controlling or changing one variable and then having a trained panel taste the beer and then as well as, you know, doing some advanced testing on the beer to see if that variable not only reached a sensory um, difference, but you know, could they measure those compounds um, in the beer as well? And, you know, it's kind of a vague example of it. But for me, it was and still is pretty exciting to read these papers because it can inspire you to try new processes or, or tweak your your ingredients a little bit. Um, and a lot of times it inspires just like to, to try new kind of concepts with beer and, you know, not just hazy, happy beers. But um, so I guess I the, the first one I read, I was just into it. I ended up writing a, a blog post, you know, I don't know, four years ago now on, on a collection of, of hot papers I just um, was able to find. And um, it went over really well. And I, and I just realized that, you know, I, I appreciated all that information. And um, it was clear to me after writing that post that um, people, um, brewers as well, kind of liked someone else doing the work of pulling together all the different papers and trying to make sense of them. And, you know, I'm, I'm happy to, to be one of those people that'll that'll do that work because again, it's, it's kind of selfish for me because I like to you know, use that information to, to try out stuff at the brewery. It's amazing how, how quickly you became a, a point of reference. As you said, you've done the heavy lifting and anybody else personally, if you, I love on your, on your website, the, um, the pull down hop list where you can um, sort by compound. So you have a crazy idea that it's going to be linalool week and you're going to try and work with that. And you just search by that and you've got 94 units and away you go. With <laughs> I like that linalool week. That should be an official week. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? So, I mean, there's enough compounds yeah. to go around as well, so it's not that uh, funny. Yeah, you know, and it, it helps to to have information in, in, and I really need to update that with with newer hops if if I can get some hop suppliers to allow me to do that because um, there's just so many more compounds now that are, are tested and found to be important. Um, but you know, if you read uh, information, you know, see you read a, a paper about um, hop synergy, which is you know the idea of you know, two different compounds kind of working together to, you know, enhance each other, um, even though they're in the in the beer in the same amount, like, you know, for example, a hop thiol form MP can increase uh, a hop monoterpene alcohol, like like linalool, just like you mentioned. And so, you know, you're reading that, mm-hmm. uh, reading a paper like that, and you're like, wow, okay, so I know that citra is high in free uh, form MP. Um, and, you know, dry hopping is the best way to get uh, form MP into beer. Um, and I know that it works synergistically with um, linalool, so you can sort to see, you know, which hops have the highest amount of linalool or, or geraniol, something like that. And so you can use the science and then use um, databases like that to really um, put together new 
new new beers, new ingredients, um, you know, inspired by research papers, which is kind of a, a unique spin on on experimentation, I think, for a lot of brewers. As part of the, the leading for this, I had to listen to an older uh, Brewlosophy podcast um, where, where you mentioned um, using clarification agents on hazy beers. Obviously, it's not particularly in-depth, but just as a point of reference, do you find yourself uh, kind of... Uh, skirting around controversy very often where you're bringing some of these high level concepts to the general market and uh, people don't necessarily believe you. <laughs> um, I, maybe, I guess not, not that really is that comes, finds its way back, back to me. Um, you know, I, I'm also maybe a little bit too much uh, this way, but I, I like to try to write things in a way that's, you know, here's what the paper and science suggests, you know, I'm not saying that's what you should do or, or shouldn't do, or it's the best way to do it. Um, it's more of a, here's a concept based on some research that, you know, has been, has been done. And it's, it's probably worth trying in your own brewery to see if you like the results. But, you know, in, in that particular thing, you know, like that's, we don't like biofine is what we use. We don't use that on all of our beers, but there's, you know, um, we, we're just talking about one we tasted today that we're, uh, uh, an IPA it's, you know, Idaho seven, um, let's see. Idaho seven citra cryo, um, in the dry hop. And we were tasting it. It just tastes a little green for us at, and yeah, greener than we usually expect at this stage. And the beer is a, a little drier than, um, our typical, um, hazy IPAs. And so this one, I think we're going to hit it with some biofine just to try to try to drop some more of that, um, you know, greener characteristic out of it. Um, hopefully that pulls a little more of the, the hops that might be in suspension out um, to clean it up a little faster but you know i think most big breweries you know do this um, in a more sophisticated way with you know having centrifuges um and so you know they're they're pulling out but you know that's just an expensive piece of equipment that we don't have um, but in a way it's uh, somewhat similar in that you know you're you're you're, you're sort of clarifying that beer. Um, there's a lot of research that's um, pretty interesting that, you know, running a, a beer through a centrifuge, you pull out a lot of the more um, volatile compounds. So the greener, um, like hydro hydrocarbons, like myrcene will um, more likely be stripped, but a lot of the more polar compounds will remain. Um, and even some recent research with thiols um, has found that a, a good portion of those uh, remain intact after centrifuging. So for us, uh, just using that, idea or that concept, you know, um, biofining a, a beer, if it's never cleared up a beer. And, and um, for us, um, if you're doing all the other kind of haze positive um, brewing procedures, um, but, you know, maybe it helps that beer peak a little quicker, kind of um, speeds up that time where it's, you know, not so green and, and harsh on the palate, but just kind of has that nice hoppy kind of um, fresh um, citrus pop. I certainly, personally, I have the luxury of a centrifuge and we're sending through hazy beers and we're still getting 100 plus EBC haze and much cleaner, shorter tank times. Yeah, very, very good results with the centrifuge on hazy beers and very, very stable haze. I'm jealous of you. <laughs> it took a while to get it right and it was really only yesterday when we really nailed it. So don't be too jealous. Looking, looking at the, the conversation today and maybe, you know, the end game transition where we're going to be closing out on advanced hop products. What's wrong with the existing hops? Like why don't hops work in general usage? Um, you know, I, I guess I would be careful to say that there's something wrong with, with hops. Um, you know, I, we still, you know, we just did our, uh, you know, yearly, um, selection, uh, contract process. And I think that the bigger, especially true, the bigger, the brewery, the more buying power you have, the bigger advantage you have to just buying, you know, traditional T90 hops that are of better quality. Um, and that's just, you know, you're, you know, I think you need a lot of times about 5,000. Um, so it's 5,000 pounds of one variety generally to, to be able to pick, um, pick your lot, um, which is just a, a tremendous amount of hops to use for a smaller brewery of, of one particular variety. Um, and, you know, doing some research for the book, you know, I, um, talking to other breweries that I respect a lot. Um, and Sam, uh, the owner of, uh, Sam Richards, the owner of other half, um, which just moved a, a new facility in, in the in DC area by us here. Um, he told me one of his biggest advantages, you know, this was a few years ago, what, but was going to these hop farms and, and hand selecting the lots. Cause you know, just, you know, one, one field to another can have dramatically different um, aromas and, and flavors. And, you know, a lot of times what a lot of 
breweries get are, are blends of different lots trying to hit sort of more of a, a mean um, sort of an average um, and just kind of getting that pick of that selection of you know really the character you're looking for in, in a certain variety is a huge advantage but um, so I, I don't know if there's anything necessarily wrong with hops that's still you know 95 percent of what we're using in, in most of our hazy beers but I, I do think um, and I always am excited about new potential products that could um, you know, improve hoppy beers, whether that's improved shelf life or um, improve, you know, just kind of the the potency or the the pop of the beer, and and even new technologies that like a centrifuge or using a centrifuge in a in a style like that is is, is something um, that I'd be interested in as well. So um, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with hops. I just think the quality can be all over the place. Yeah, that was more to antagonize you into a response. It wasn't, it wasn't <laughs> oh, literal. Nice. Uh, that was that was an average nice question. Obviously, you you seem to use the the phrase top note quite a lot. And is is that one of the spaces that you think is appropriate for these advanced top products? Yeah, I think you know I, I just recently um, wrote a, a a blog post that was you know a little bit of my experience on on a lot of the newer um, hop oils that are out there, and these are you know, hop variety specific oils. So that means, you know, if it's, if it's a citra hop oil, it was made from just citra, you know, they weren't trying to manipulate the oils in any way to create a citra like oil from, from different um, varieties. Uh, and, you know, there's, they're kind of all over the, you know, there's a handful of companies that are making these now. Um, you know, Hopsteiner has some um, totally natural solutions is another company that does a lot of these. Mm. Um, like uh, Glacier Hops Ranch is another. Um, and a lot of these are just designed as post-fermentation oils that, um, you know, it depends on how you use them and, and how much you use. But um, I found that, you know, when used right, um, I there's a nice little just, you know, like I, like you mentioned, it's just like a top note that, that adds to the beer in a way that's, um, you know, matching what you already hopefully are getting from, you know, the probably T90 pellets or, you know, cryo hops, which we can, you know, get into a little bit too, but that's just a, um, addition to the beer, um, that, um, I think can, you know, rise, you know, if you, if let's say, you know, you, you didn't think you got a good extraction or maybe your rousing technique didn't work as well, or the hop itself just wasn't as good as other crops you've gotten in the past where, you know, that little top note addition can be, uh, welcomed. I was a relatively early adopter of uh, Glacier Ranch mm -hmm. stuff, and in particular the, the Cascade um, specific. And it really gave me the flexibility looking at Cascade as a non-proprietary where it was coming from a lot of different sources um, to be able to have a static, one static IPA on the ranging um, and cut it together at the end with the, with the top note from Glacier, just knowing it was going to give me that recognition across the bar that that was the product. It, it really tied it together more than anything yeah, else. Yeah, that's interesting. So were you using that um, post-fermentation and just kind of dosing it directly into yeah, the tank? Yeah, so, so bright, bright tank dosing it, it was pretty early as well. So I was crack out the uh, the Everclear type scenario and um, spin it out for half an hour or whatever it was and then, then go in. So obviously some residue issues and stuff with, with that processing. We didn't have the luxury of inline dosing. Mm. So it was a little bit more kind of, you know, garagey, buckety type stuff. Um, but you know, that, that was the B you could always get. That was the IPA. And then we could build the rest of the ranges off that. But in, in your, uh, uh experience, you think that it, it did kind of elevate the beer clearly or very much so. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, also I know you've, you've kind of looked at some other studies that are non-committal about these hop products, adding a degree of longevity to the underlying beer, as well as adding a note that will persist longer than hops mm -hmm. would. Yeah, there's one paper that I was able to find that looked at some um, hop oils similar to kind of like the Glacier Hops Ranch type product. And mm. um, they found that when they were uh, measuring, um, you know, staling aldehydes that, that can be in beer, they were a, a little bit lower in the beers that were treated with the hop oils. So, I mean, that's kind of just one one reference that I that I could find. And, and, and there's a lot of um, brewers that do say that they think that's um, happening with their beers. So, yeah. So obviously the, one of the, the comments or the walkaways from that paper was we don't have enough information, but we need to explore this further, I think was the call. Yeah, I think so. And there's, if you're ever at, you know, if you're a brewery and you're sending beers out in cans, um, if, if it's a hoppy beer in a can that potentially might be stored warm or something, that's a, 
would be a huge perk, I think, um, if it if it helps keep that that shelf life. One thing I was hoping you could could elaborate on, and not enough to to kind of give some clarification, but not go super deep, is your idea of the, the matrix and building the matrix beer and then filling it in with different elemental hops. Talking about you know concentrations, and I think the phrasing you, you've used is uh, if you jump in the lake and get wet, you don't get wet, or if you jump <laughs> yeah. in again, you know, there's looking at specific hops or types of hop products for specific uses and how that fits into the underlying liquid yeah i mean i think like you know the you know jumping into the water kind of scenario is just like you know the the idea there was like if there's different saturation points where you know adding more of something you're not really getting any more extracted or or getting more into the beer but for me i guess my mindset in a lot of uh, a lot of our recipe development is is really trying to pack in a lot of hop complexity into beers so you know using a lot of the research to pick certain hot side hops um, that might have more of the compounds that stick around um, using some of the research to um, use those same same variety of hops but at different temperatures that might retain more of those compounds potentially using some other hop oils like an incognito um, in the whirlpool because there you're you're potentially just you're getting uh, better extraction. It's already in liquid form, you know, going into mm. your beer, and and of course the goal is to get them into your fermenter. Um, potentially using some um, oils that are, um, you know, aren't isomerized that you could use in the on the hot side um, cooler, so you're not getting as much bitterness, but hopefully getting more um, oils transferred into your fermenter. Um, you know, some of these oils too are you know, in my opinion, are kind of, um, I, can't, I wish I need, I had need a better term for it, but it's just like, if you've smelled hop extract before, it just has that extract smell. Um, it doesn't really smell the same as like opening a bag of hops. It's just, it's greener. It's, it's, um, extracty. Um, um, so, you know, I think a lot of those compounds are the most volatile ones. So that's the, you know, the greener, um, myrcene and, and those kind of, um, compounds, which, you know, if you're, Making a hot product, um, say you're trying to mimic citra that's 70% uh, myrcene, and you're making mm-hmm. that you know in a liquid form that's you know emulsified and and ready to go into a beer, um, you're likely going to get a lot of that myrcene transferred into your beer um, at levels much much higher than you could ever accomplish. I think with you know a T90 pellet, and so because mm-hmm. of that, I think you know adding some of these hop oils. Um, mid-fermentation or early in fermentation are, are a good way to, to increase that complexity even more just because you're using the active CO2 to obviously it's easier to add it to the beer at that point because you kind of you're not as worried about oxygen as much um, but you, you're giving a chance for those greener resinous um, you know hydrocarbons and a chance to you know volatize through you know active CO2 CO2 scrubbing um, so yeah, I think the the goal is really just trying to pack in as much as you can, but you know, trying to make it uh, like ev- very harmonious. You're not trying to have one thing stand out more than than another. Um, but there's some yeah. beers that don't need it. I mean, sometimes we'll get um, we we've just recently got you know really good Nelson um, uh, as a hop that we you know can just dry hop and it's super punchy. Um, we probably wouldn't need to add any Nelson oils to that. Um, but we, in fact, we, we did, um, with one of the beers with that same Nelson and it, and it worked, um, pretty well, but we had to do a lot of, um, bench top dosing to figure out, you know, the exact amounts and which types of, of oils. Um, and for us in that particular beer, it was, I'm, I'm very interested in, um, totally natural solutions has, um, a unique process where they can kind of fractionalize some of these oils. Um, so that those greener kind of harsher compounds that I think are, are a little um, unnatural smelling, um, especially if you're using them post-fermentation, they're able to fraction off those um, hydrocarbons and lower them essentially so that your oil is um, you know, hopefully a little more representative of what you would get from dry hopping. Um, and so I'm interested in those that are kind of pulled back a little bit and lean kind of more towards the fruity side because um, in my opinion, that's probably more would more closely resemble what you get from the dry hop itself, but then you're just kind of layering in um, again, that, that, that top note kind of thing. So um, I think there's still a lot of uh, area for improvement in these, in these oils as they kind of figure out what, what brewers actually want from them. 
just to kind of categorize where I, where I think you're coming from. So you're very much about the flavor in the finished product. You're not really focusing on commercial scale savings by using these products. It's it's just make the best possible beer with the most exultant flavor set. Yeah, I think that's kind of, you know, and it's more of a result. You know, we're a pretty small brewery here, so we're 10 barrels uh, system. So, you know, double batching that um, for most of our hoppy stuff, which is, you know, pretty small and small enough where, you know, we're selling most of our beer, you know, out of the tasting room. And um, that's kind of where those margins, um, you're not as worried about it. You're not, you know, sending so much out into the world in cans and um, and for us, that's kind of where we like to be because, you know, it would be a real bummer if, if, you know, we do some of this uh, research or we experiment and make these great beers on the small scale, but if we weren't able to afford to scale them up, um, would be a little frustrating, but, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of always our mindset is, you know, what makes the better beer and, and if it makes, you know, any financial sense at all to still do it, then we, we pretty much will, um, you know, not every beer is treated the same in terms of, you know, how much you might make from it, but, you know, if you can learn something from a beer, that might be just as you know, beneficial to the brewery in the long run. There was something that really stood out when I was when I was reading through some of your stuff, and it, it's a pretty basic concept, but it's it's very enlightening. And it's it's the exercise whereby you analyze some hop compounds in hops, you performed a dry hopping, and then you captured the waste, and you had the in tank and the waste um, analyzed also. And you worked out how radically inefficient dry hopping was. Yeah, that is an interesting one. That was um, Thomas Shellhammer um, is is uh, the author of that paper, um, and that was one that was done. You know, I think that's uh, Oregon State University, um, and it was just interesting to yeah t- exactly what you said. You know, test the the hops um, for potential oil. You know, test them again after dry hopping, and test you know what's actually in the beer and you know, kind of leaning on that myrcene example, um, you know, that less than 1% of that myrcene was, was tested in the beer, which is crazy when that, you know, can be 60, 70% of a hops total oil. Um, and that's just cause that's a very volatile compound. Um, you know, that's, that's one that if you're adding hops to the boil, you're going to you know, pretty much volatize that almost instantly. Um, but you know the the linalool, the monoterpene alcohols like linalool and geraniol, they they were closer to about forty percent um, extracted uh, into the beer. Those hops that are being wasted, for want of a better term, are underutilized. You're a fan of using them for other things. Uh, I'm a I'm a fan of exploring how to use them. Um, haven't it's yeah. it's something that I think makes a lot of sense in in some ways. You know, if there's still alpha acids in there, um, there's still you know sometimes over 50% of some of these monoterpene alcohols were after. Um, I haven't seen any um, tests that looked at, you know, how much of the thiols are, are in there. Um, another potential thing to look at is how many of the um, thiol precursors are in beer. Um, you know, you have, you know, a popular thiol 3MH, um, like a grapefruit leaning thiol. Um, there's a, you know, cysteine, like, so it's cis 3MH, which is a, a precursor version of that thiol. Um, if those are potentially in high amounts and spent hops, um, it'd be interesting to, um, to, to figure out how to use them um, when you're using the right enzymes or yeast strains that could free those um, bound compounds. But there's also some risk or I see as potential risk or problems is you might have a lot of yeast in that beer um, that's with those hops. And I don't think you would want to really add that to the kettle. Maybe you could, but I would be a little worried about that kind of flavor you might get from like boiled yeast. But yeah, sure. I think adding those to the mash might be an interesting place to start. That's, that's where I was leading to. And it obviously seems like the obvious place to put those. And it, it does tie in with, tie in with your idea of a heavy metal stabilization. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, alpha acids and beta acids can kind of pull out some of those, um, metals that you get from, from grains. Um, but it's also, um, you know, I mean, the idea there is really, you know, there was a, a paper done that, that was dosing like, uh, alpha acids and beta acids to, you know, at different points in the process. And they, they found that, you know, by adding, by adding these hops in the mash, um, they were reducing the amount of, you know, problematic metals that could cause potentially cause, you know, would react with oxygen down the line that might get into the beer and, and cause issues. Um, and so that's, you know, mash hopping is something we do quite a bit of, um, but in small, you know, small amounts, but, you know, if you're using spent hops, um, that seems like a, you know, a, a good use of some of those alpha acids and, 
Um, and, and if it particularly, ha if they have some of those precursors, you know, the, some of those style precursors and you're using, you know, I know, uh, genetically engineered strains aren't allowed everywhere. Um, there's certainly not yeah, that, yeah, that's, yeah. you know, it's, I can see why there's, there's a lot of, uh, I mean, I, I've done a lot of research, uh, or I tried to do some, um, you know, research into, into the strains and we've done some experimentation with them at the brewery, but, um, it really would be interesting to have more breweries, um, try these strains, um, especially if you can free a bunch of compounds from mash hopping that are spent hops. Um, you know, there's just a lot of potential there, but, um, I guess we'll have to figure out different ways for brewers to, uh, experiment with that kind of stuff in, in countries that don't allow it. Just to uh, go on about the, the heavy metals for a little bit longer. Um, you seem to say manganese a lot. <laughs> yeah. And then I'm guessing the pathway with the copper is probably coming in through the sprays on the hops yeah. or on the grain. Yeah, I think, well, so like manganese is one that, you know, is, is, can oxidize um, like, like the others. And that's one that you get more from, you know, the flaked grains have, have more uh, manganese than, than malted grains. I think it's somewhere like 30, 40% in, in one um, paper that um, I cited in the book. And you, copper, I think, you know, a lot of that's, I think it's, it's still just uh, in, in the grain itself. I'm not sure if it's, you know, from how they, it's treated or, or sprayed. Um, you know, I know that's a thing if like European hops are sometimes sprayed with copper and, and that's why you might see um, like lower thiol counts or no thiol counts in some of those hops just because you know, copper can you know, absorb thiols. You know, we still use flaked grains at the brewery. Um, you know, maybe mashing, mash hopping can can help a little bit with that. Um, but also if you're, you know, I like to think of like, if you're getting oxidized beers or things are oxidizing quicker, I think that might be a place to, to start, but I wouldn't be you know, overly obsessed with it. Um, you know, we're going to brew a, a, a IPA coming up at the end of the month that um, has a pretty high percentage of flaked grains in it. So we're not completely moving away from them, but yeah, again, you don't just, there's a lot of information, a lot of science and, and at least using it to uh, make sense of your recipes, I think is, is um, a lot of what we do. I hope you're enjoying this Brewer's Perspective podcast with Scott Janish. At the beginning of this episode, you heard a little bit about Lupamax from Alejandro Cortez. Now you can hear a little bit more about what makes Lupamax different from standard T90 pellets from Jeff Daly, Sensory Program Manager at John I. Haas. There are things that we don't talk, that we don't uh, focus on enough, and that's other elements that come from that green matter that's in a normal T90. And so the polyphenols in there, um, they're both the green material is carriers of the enzymes that can result in hop creep. The polyphenols themselves, depending on their character uh, and how they're used, can more easily bind with proteins, either in a good way, uh, producing the haze of New England IPAs, or in bad ways, binding up with the yeast cell walls, producing a really terrible bitterness and astringency. So by concentrating down into the Lucmax type pellet, uh, we're both reducing those polyphenols, we're reducing the yield loss, and we're reducing the potential for those off characteristics that come from the green matter and not just that grassy flavor or aroma. On top of that, you know, what, what we do with Loop Max and the flavor dimension is a lot different compared to some other concentrated pellets out there. You know, how the, how the lots are selected for Loop Max compared to others, you know, concentrating a pellet, a lot of times it's been, say, Citra, target alpha about 12%. Oh, well, we have a lot that's 8%, so let's concentrate it to the bleeding edge possible to get, you know, 12, 15, 18% alpha, and therefore we get our money's worth from the alpha that's in there. But that's still thinking in a commodity mindset when it comes to alpha being the biggest dimension of what a hop is, and that's just, frankly speaking, not the truth. Flavor. Flavor is the number one thing. So when we go for selecting lots for Lupamax, we have a target end goal of the flavor. Uh, the alpha, the oil content, the HSI, these, these play into it, but our end goal is trying to balance those technical qualifications compared to how we know the flavor is in the raw hops and how it should develop based on the percent concentration that happens to get to our end consistent alpha. And so that's, that's our philosophy there where we are trying to get the maximum flavor with the minimum loss being important, but kind of almost secondary to making sure that the concentrated pellet gives that consistent higher impact flavor relative to the T90 traditional product. You can hear the full conversation with HPA's sales and marketing manager, Owen Johnston, 
John Ihouse, the Century Program Manager, Jeff Daly, and Brewing Solutions Specialist, Alejandro Cortez, via the Brewery Pro podcast channel. There's a link in the show notes. Now back to Marcus and Scott Janish. So I've noticed with some of your recipe formatting, you really like to slip in horses for courses. You like to put in very specific hops and appropriate them for very specific uses. So you're not really the the, the one hop IPA kind of guy. You're, you're picking things. How do people start to engage at that level? How do they start to work out which hops are going to fit where in their formulations? Yeah, I think a lot of people, probably a lot of brewers already do it if they're taking good notes and... Um you know, using varieties, you know, whether it's, you know, you're, I like, I'm a big fan of tasting beers and smelling beers before dry hopping them to see, you know, did the hot side hops pay off, you know, did the, the one or two varieties we used at the, in the whirlpool at, you know, say you maybe tried new, a new variety or tried a lower temperature. Um, did it, can you taste it or, you know, is it just kind of n- neutral? And I think when you're really tasting a lot of your beers at that stage in the process, you have a good idea of, um, how they taste and, and, and if there's ever any um, variance there with a, you know, take more of a hop forward nose or, or flavor, I think you, you probably get keyed in on it and you could notice and you might be able to figure out maybe that was a hop variety thing. Um, for us, that was one, one hop that really stood out is um, Idaho seven on the hot side. Um, that was just one we used early. We were always trying new ones on the, on the hot side. Cause you know, it's, it's less risk. Um, a lot of times, some of the cheaper hops seem to work pretty good um, for the whirlpool. Um, um, and and you know, just tasting beers that were had Idaho Seven in a in a cooled whirlpool, we we seem to have a little bit more of a, a punch, kind of a, you know, just a hoppiness there that we weren't getting with other varieties. Um, so much so that we've you know we've since moved away from using too much Idaho Seven um, in the whirlpool. It's more of a again a, a complexity builder sort of your i like to think of like whirlpool hopping as a way to kind of layer start that that hop saturated base that can then be dry hopped pretty heavily i think one without the other is is a little unbalanced but you know in in yakima chief has done some uh, research recently into what uh, they called survivable research Um, and so that's really working backwards from a beer so okay you have a beer in your hand it smells really hoppy it tastes great okay let's test that beer and see what hop drive compounds are in that beer um, so we know that those are hops that survive the process they're surviving dry hopping or you know if they're used in the kettle or, you know they're surviving the a little bit of heat and trub and um, co2 fermentation or C- co2 purging from uh, you know active fermentation you know what compounds are important and then what hops have the highest amount of those compounds. Um, and so for us, that was interesting research because one of the top on that list was Idaho 7. And so, you know, that was interesting to like, okay, science makes our results uh, make a little more sense. And then we can buy into that theory a little more to, to test other hops um, that are high in those survivable compounds. So, um, so there's information out there you can use to, uh, to try to use hops at um, specific times with more of a with more of a purpose and you know hot side for us uh, that survivable thing is um, is important as well as when if you're getting into kind of like the bound compounds versus free compounds you know the whirlpool or kettle is probably better for um, using bound ones whereas you know dry hopping post fermentation is is good for the you know hops high in the free um, compounds um, yeah you can use the research to really try to put together a recipe that 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 makes sense for the flavor you're after, but also just to try to get um, coax as much out of those ingredients as you can. Um, I wanted to slip in a question that's not necessarily that relevant, but it, it, it does have hops in the sentence. <laughs> uh, one of the problems, you're obviously talking a lot about dry hopping. You're committed to dry hopping. You're making hazies. What's your yeast reuse, your yeast harvesting model look like? Is it non-existent or you've got something really clever? Yeah, I mean, we we are pretty conservative when it comes to harvesting yeast. Um, and so a lot of times what we'll do is um, we'll buy a, a yeast pitch and we'll do just like a pale ale with it. Um, and so, you know, we'll do a smaller, so like a 10-barrel a batch of pale ale um, generally. Um, and then we'll we'll do all the, the dry hopping post-fermentation on that beer. And so we can get, you know, after fermentation is done, we'll, we'll do a soft crash on the beer. 
um, give it a couple days to really get that yeast to, to settle out in the cone. We'll, we'll harvest that yeast. And that's usually enough yeast to do a, a couple more batches of, you know, an IPA and a, and, and a double IPA. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of call it quits um, with that yeast. Um, and, sure. and we'll kind of wait, you know, and, and it's kind of more of the process, you know, we're only brewing, you know, one IPA, one double IPA a month for the most part. Um, and so we don't need a lot of that yeast um, in-house, but it's just um, allows us to you know, get good harvest. But, you know, we don't do a lot of active um, fermentation, dry hopping, and especially in that pale ale where we're going to harvest that yeast. Um, but since we're not harvesting the, you know, the, the following double IPA or IPA, we, we can get away with uh, trying that if, if we wanted to. So that's, that's kind of how we approach it. There was a, a paper uh, released, um, published in the MBAA uh, Master Brewers publication recently from um, Bearded Iris, um, and they do a very um, interesting way of harvesting yeast by um, essentially top cropping a strain, because a lot of these hazy beers are... So I gave that a try. I saw the paper, and we duplicated the process, and it... it wasn't successful the per first time to put it politely but uh, yeah it's a fantastic read and it's at that kind of entry level where anybody could give it a crack as well so it's a, it's a very interesting paper yeah it's it's i like the creativity of it and and also just you know it makes it makes a lot of sense so you know we haven't tried it yet um but i know that you know that that would be a, a great way to get good harvest by you know active fermentation dry hopping um, but it's a very uh, you have to have a full tank you have to have um, your timing down and, and all that kind of yeah. stuff. But, yeah, quite challenging. Yeah. Again, this one's a little bit um, obtuse, but just I know you've, you've mentioned some yeast strains before, and you particularly your, your comments around wine yeasts and the aromatic properties of wine yeasts and looking at those cutting back into beer uses, some parallels. Yeah, I mean, wine yeast for me was really more, the you know, the wine world has been ahead of the kind of the beer world in terms of, you know, freeing compounds from, from hops that are, you know, generally um, in their bound state. Um, they've done a lot of research trying to free um, bound um, thiols. So um, the same, the same thiols that in wine grapes that are um, in hops. Um, so, you know, 3MH, 4MMP, 3MHA, these are very important in wines, um, particularly white wines, like fruity Sauvignon Blancs. Um, and so, you know, they've gone as far as, you know, they've been, uh, there's been genetically engineered strains in the wine world for a while now. And, um, you know, there's just other, there's more research done on which, you know, which ones of these strains have the, you know, highest potential to free these compounds. And so for, for thiols, you need an enzyme called beta lyase. Um, and so some of these wine yeasts, unlike a lot of ale strains, create this enzyme naturally during fermentation. So for me, it was, I wanted to, you know, I, I know through other research that like Cascade or, or Saz or Calypso are hops that um, have a, a very high amount of bound compounds, bound thiols. So what if we use those in combination with, uh, you know, a wine strain that's been tested to have the highest potential to free them? Um, and, you know, I did... A, a whole bunch of different small ferments like this um, over the um, course of writing the book and even smaller scale at the brewery. And, um, you know, I found that, you know, I didn't get it, these beers tested for, for thiols, but, you know, potentially there was some freeing of these bound compounds, but with each new strain comes its own fermentation characteristics. And so, you know, I was getting uh, hoppy beers that had sometimes, you know, some weird kind of phenolics in them. Um, you know, just something seemed a little out of place. You know, I did have some success with like a VIN 7 strain, and, and I believe that was a lager, kind of a hoppy lager type of situation. Um, 71B is a yeast strain that used, you know, as like 5 or 10% of a yeast pitch that, that was uh, pretty neutral. That's a pretty aggressive strain. And so just trying to use that research to push that, that, that thiol um, capability from the hops not trying to give a commercial to genetically engineered strains, but none of them have even come close. None of the wine strains um, came close to a sensory level as, you know, some of the newer uh, engineered strains that are designed to do exactly that. I mean, they um, have the gene inserted that creates the beta lyase enzyme, which is, you know, what the wine world was, was, was looking at. Um, but they turn it up, they amplify it a little bit. So that enzyme is um, especially active and can free um, not only precursors in um, hops, but precursors in grain, you know, particularly pale malt grain. Um, 3MH is a precursor is in grain. Um, 
there's also, you know, if you're using wine grapes or wine skins or, or, or use or spent wine products like Phantasm, you can also free a lot of these uh, precursors. But so for me, the, the test with the wine strains never really developed um, even the co-pitches into anything we scaled up at the brewery. Obviously touched on those, um, what was the name of the company? The one out of the UK, Totally Natural yep, totally Products? Totally Natural Solutions, yeah. Solutions. Anything else that you'd like to, to bring to our attention in that kind of same department that's that's new, that's cutting edge, that not looking for commercial, you know, volume savings on high yield that just gets the job done in terms of flavor? I mean, I'm still a, a big fan of, of cryo hops. That's something we still use all the time at the brewery. Um, so, you know, using... I, I love doing beers that's like 100%, let's say, mosaic, where it's um, dry hop, where 50% of it is T90, and the other 50 is like uh, mosaic cryo, kind of just builds in, um, you know, a little more of the, that diverse mosaic kind of flavor. Um, you know, the oils, I think, are going to be interesting because you know, there's just new ones coming out. Um, Spectrum is a new one um, that, is, that has just recently come out that we tried. In, during active fermentation, I think, you know, this might be a good way to get some active uh, sort of not having to put hot vegetal material in your beer during fermentation, but getting the oils in there. So if you're going to harvest the beer, maybe that's a good way to do that. You know, in addition, if you're, you know, even even if you're dry hopping during active fermentation, I think you're still at risk of, of hop creep. Um, and so that, you know, you could, you're still getting that enzyme from the hops, enzymes in the hops into your beer, uh, although you'll have healthy fermentation going on because it's, you know, you're obviously adding these during fermentation, but, um, you know, you might have to keep that beer warmer a little longer to make sure that there's no, uh, hop creep or the hop creep, um, takes place in the tank. Um, and using a lot of these oils, they'll, they're all, those enzymes are denatured. So let's say you're using a spectrum or something. Um, you know, mid fermentation or early in fermentation, you're, you're maybe blowing out some of those greener uh, vegetal, um, like myrcene type compounds. Um, you're adding additional oils into the fermenter, you know, essentially what you're trying to do with your whirlpool additions. Um, so you have some active yeast interaction there and, you know, you're not, you're not at any risk of, of hop creep. Um, so to me, like those are just, you know, a good combination of things to, at least get you to experiment with some of these products to really just try to, um, in that case, probably layer in um, some more of that um, you know, that hot saturated flavor to then be able to withstand heavy dry hopping. You said hop creep a few times, and I don't want to go too deep on it, but if you could, how do you know when hop creep's finished, according to you? Uh, you know, I think, you know, hop creep is essentially very quickly is just you generally have, you know, dextrins in beer, which are unfermentable sugars. And when you're adding um, hops, the hops themselves have enzymes that can free up those um, dextrins, um, creating fermentable sugars that the yeast can then act on. Um, those enzymes are more active at warmer temperatures. So that's, you know, one reason, uh, one of many reasons why we dry hop cooler um, at the brewery. Um, but if you're adding hops during uh, mid fermentation, you're, you're, you know, at still at a high temperature. Um, there's really like two ways a lot of, at least that I'm aware of that a lot of breweries um, treat or think about hop creep. And that's, you know, dry hopping warm, everything's warm. You give it a week or so and make sure that, you know, um, you're, you're, there's no diacetyl and, you know, everything's cleaned up. You have stable um, readings, you know, you're not still dropping in gravity points, um, or you just dry hop colder where those enzymes are much less active. Um, and hopefully, you know, even if that beer warms up later, hopefully that you don't have any more refermentation. Um, so, you know, that's, that's kind of how we think of it. We do it, uh, all of our dry hopping for that reason, cold, or if we do it warmer, we'll, we'll have to um, keep it warmer for a little longer just to make sure that, you know, the hop creep takes place um, through, you know, gravity readings or um, however you're testing it. And, um, you know, and I think we've pretty much moved away from a lot of the warm dry hops just because uh, I think you just get, you know, the warmer you dry hop, the more the, the myrcene and some of those things that I've, you know, aren't bad per se, but, um, you know, the more myrcene and, you know, polyphenols that you get from warmer dry hops and longer durations, um, I think can really compile and, you know, lead to a little astringency. So um, we, we go the cold, uh, the cold route for trying to deal with hop creep. Sure, cool. Um, so just to just to wind up, and it's a couple of it's one question with a couple of parts. That's that's pretty open ended. So just try and yeah, let's let's see where this goes. But we've seen a lot of evolution of, of IPA 
going on. Um, when's it going to stop? What's it going to look like next? And and what styles might emerge in the near future? Uh, yeah, I hope I hope it doesn't stop. I hope people keep uh, you know experimenting with the style. I think that's you know it's pretty great to think about you know where we were with IPAs you know ten fifteen years ago to to where we are now. Um, I I think they've you know they're different enough where they're kind of their own their own um, sort of beast where you know those drier. Uh, West Coast ones um, with, you know, a little cleaner finish in, in terms of, um, you know, just like a solid bitterness to them. Um, moving to like hazier ones where, you know, bitterness is back down, more fruit flavored. Um, hops themselves are becoming, it seems, more fruit flavored, um, you know, less uh, vegetal in, in a lot of cases. Um, you know, I don't know where things are going to go. I'm very interested in these kind of wine um IPA hybrids are kind of fun um, to experiment with, especially when a lot of the research on hop thiles and wine thiles are so similar, you know, trying to combine some of those flavors. Um, there's, there's always difficulty when using, I think um, fruited IPAs is always a great concept, but it's difficult to, to, to do because, you know, most fruits will lower your pH. Um, and, you know, you a hoppy beer with a with a lower ph seems uh, kind of clashes in my opinion you you know you kind of want that you know a double ipa might finish at four five four six four seven in terms of ph range or higher and you know if you're using fruit and you're in those those low fours um it just it it tastes thinner or it just has like a you know, you know it could have good flavor it just it feels a little bit off so you know wine grapes with with fruit is is an interesting or with with hops especially wine like hops and particularly again using some of those strains created to free thiols from both of those products um is is an interesting concept so i i think there's a a lot of potential in in these in those genetically engineered strains for the future of of hoppy beers and really getting a lot more from um hops that you generally wouldn't think of to use you know for example, we've done a, a strain or we've did, used the cosmic punch strain from Omega and did, you know, heavy mash hopping with saws and got a, you know, extremely fruit forward um, beer before dry hopping, um, you know, and that's, that's crazy to think of. I mean, that was saws and, and a lot of precursors from that and the grain itself creating a, a fruit forward beer. And then the challenge though, is once we dry hop that uh, quite heavily, we, a lot of that um, fermentation character, the thiols was, you know, masked or, or removed a little bit. And, and, um, we've actually sent a beer into, uh, to France to get measured for thiols after doing that. And there was a reduction, um, in thiols after dry hopping, whether that's, you know, metals from the hops, pulling it out, absorbing them or, or vegetal material kind of pulling out some of those, those, those thiols. So, um, I think there's a lot of potential with those strains or, or even enzymes that are created to, to do the same thing. Um, but it's just figuring out ways to to use them and utilize um, some of these new products to create um, beers that haven't been created before, but also ones that um, should be recreated because they're good. <laughs> well, that's that's probably the, the perfect time to, to finish up, mate. Thanks very much for your time. That's a lot to take in. I can't recommend your uh, your webpage highly enough. It's I'm um, there a couple of times a week, so definitely people should get out and get onto that. And um, thanks for your time, mate. Well, I, I appreciate it. I, you know, it's, it's always humbling to, to hear other people even reading it. What, and it's great when they're in different countries. So I, I appreciate it. Um, and thanks for, uh, for having me on. You can download a full transcript of this conversation with links to other information in the show notes to this episode. Brewery Pro content is presented by Brews News and is designed for the brewing industry professional. If you have any suggestions for topics that we can cover, email us at cheers at brewsnews.com.au. Thank you for listening.